This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 76 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today I am joined by a very impressive young woman who is a part of a very big show. Her name, Sophie Turner. Her show, Game of Thrones, which you might have heard about. It's a little program on HBO that happens to be one of the most watched and critically acclaimed on television. Game of Thrones' sixth season is nominated for more Emmys than any other show this year, and Sophie Turner's contributions to it, as Sansa Stark, the oldest daughter of the noble Stark household, is a major reason. British-born Sophie was the winner of a nationwide casting search for the part of Sansa when she was just 13, and her life, and certainly her career, have never been the same since. Audiences have watched mesmerized as Sansa has endured tragedy and hardship and most recently triumph. And if you're anything like me, you can't wait to see what's in store for her next. In the meantime, though, Sophie is taking on other projects as well. She appeared in a big film this summer for the first time, X-Men Apocalypse, as Jean Grey, whose telekinetic and telepathic powers consume her and turn her into Dark Phoenix. She's also lining up all sorts of other projects. And she has big dreams for the future. We talk about all of this and lots more over the course of our conversation, which I hope you'll enjoy as much as I did. Let's go to it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sylvie, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a, it's an exciting day for us. So we always begin every episode by asking where our guest was born and raised and what their folks did or do for a living. So Let's start there. I was born in a town called Northampton in England, and I was raised in a town called Warwickshire, in a village just kind of outside of there. 
And my mum was a nursery school teacher and my dad was a logistics consultant. What exactly <laughs> Super is exciting. that? I, I don't know. You don't know either, okay. okay. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, the child never really right. knows what their dad does, but you're just like, a logistics consultant, right. okay. He's now, a smart man. I, I, I take it. Um, so now, were, were movies or TV a big part of your life as a kid? You know, it was less kind of watching the movies and the TV, and it was it was always more the acting and putting on plays and that kind of stuff. Well, I joined a theatre company when I was about three years old, and then since then, every time I had my friends over, I would always kind of initiate us putting on a play. Yeah. And it was always kind of like a day thing, and our parents would always have to pay us in like sweets <laughs> or something to, to come watch the show. Right. And they probably would have paid a lot of money to get out to watching get the shows because they were really terrible. Well, I tried to prep a bit for this and read that this theater company, I believe that you're referring to is this is the Playbox Theater yes, Company. Yes. Now, that came about, I guess at three, you don't necessarily know what you're interested in, but that was almost like a, a form of daycare, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like my mom had... I have two older brothers who were a bit of a handful and I was a bit of a handful so I think she needed to just kind of ship them all off so they went to rugby and I was painfully shy as a kid so she kind of shipped me off to to acting class. And would some form of acting class continue once you actually went off to proper school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I continued up until I was about 16, I think, at the same at the same theater company with the same teachers and everything. Wow. And it really became kind of a thing with my friends. We, you know, we had a real kind of friendship group and it was I was the only one that was really passionate about it for the acting, but everyone else came because there was a really good cafe <laughs> <laughs> and they did really good paninis. There you go. Well, that's a, that's a reason. What do you think it was about acting that you gravitated towards I think it was kind of the freedom that comes with it just being able to go into this acting class at like 13 14 and be able to swear and kiss boys and kiss girls <laughs> and just kind of like do whatever and no one got judged for it and that's what I really liked about it because you know as I said I was so shy as a kid and it, it, it was just the most liberating thing to do and just no judgment yeah it was wonderful so as I understand it, and please correct me if any of this is wrong, but Go you had it. not had a professional acting gig prior to Game of Thrones? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Game of Thrones was my first That's my first one. Going in the deep end. Um, I know. So, <laughs> so, like, how did this even first cross your radar or you cross their radar because of the fact that there hadn't been other work that they could have seen? Or how did this happen? It was, I think they just kind of wanted... I don't know, I think they wanted kids who had no experience and kind of hadn't been molded to act a certain way or work a certain way. I think they just kind of wanted people who were really thrown in at the deep end because also that somewhat parallels our, our storylines. Right. So they just kind of went around normal, normal schools for the kids and my drama teacher just threw in me with a bunch of my other friends and we all auditioned together. Let me stop you there. So when she <laughs> volunteered you... For this, it sounds like did she run it by you first? Did you know what Game of Thrones, you know, that it was based on these novels? Did you? No. What did you know at that point? I I didn't know HBO. I didn't know <laughs> Game of Thrones. I didn't know George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I barely knew what TV was. Right. Um, 
yeah, she just kind of, she she brought a ton of us up to the front of the class at, at form time and was like, you guys are going to audition for this because you fit the bill. And for ages, I was calling it like king of, like three <laughs> the three kings or something. I was like, I'm auditioning for something called the three kings. Right. Um, <laughs> and we just kind of did it at lunchtime. Like we almost forgot and we were like, oh my God, we have the audition. So it we kind of just did it and took the mickey with it. Yeah. And, because I'd done one audition before and I I hadn't got it and me being so kind of passionate about it mm-hmm. and I get really excited about whatever I'm kind of gunning for. Um, I was so let down that I was like, whatever, this one, I'm not going to get it. And the, the drama teacher as well um, from the boys' school was kind of like, don't expect anything. This isn't going to come to anything. It's a good experience. So I was like, fine, whatever. Because we'll this was like a nationwide thing, right? They were looking at... I don't know if you know how many people were considered. I think they looked. I think they went round most of the schools in England, but I don't know. And I, f- I forgot to tell my mum about it as well. Like, it w- <laughs> my mum only found out when she got a call off Nina Gold, the casting director, being like, "Hey, Sophie's in the final seven. Oh, and she was like, God. "For what? <laughs> what so- has my child done now?" <laughs> So it was it was that that big a deal that you didn't even mention it to your mom. Like it yeah, was you had well, no I was real just kind concept. Of like I'm not gonna get it. Right. And I don't know what Game of Thrones is right. or the Three Kings. Right. <laughs> so no, I just didn't mention it to her. So she gets a call now. That's how you found out that you were in the finals, or you had found out another way. No, that's how I found out. Was my mom kind of woke me up and was like, "You're in the final seven for something <laughs> for Game of Thrones," and I was like. Oh my God, I actually got somewhere with it. Right. So I started crying and then the passion for Thrones begun there. Yeah. And then it spiraled into every night I was going into my mom's room being like, if I don't get this job, <laughs> I'm never going back to school. I'm not doing anything. This right. is going to crush me. And how old were you at that point? I was 13. Wow. And so I guess I should ask what that initial audition entailed and then what once you were a finalist, what did you have to do? The initial audition, I think it was just a, a scene that they actually cut out of the pilot. It was it was Sansa and Arya arguing over something or other, I can't remember. But it, it was very lighthearted. It was just me and my friends and we were really taking the mickey. <laughs> and then once I got down to the finals, we did. I think I had formal callbacks or something. And it was just kind of like chopping and changing, figuring out. I auditioned with a couple of Arias. I auditioned with Maisie. Oh, you did? Yeah. And I th- we also did um, Sansa seeing her head's, her father's head on a spike as well <laughs> at one point. So that at least they made it clear up front what you were signing up for, Yeah, I exactly. Guess. <laughs> it wasn't all like roses. Right. You know? So how much were they able to tell you at that point? I don't know how much they even knew about who Sansa was and what you would potentially be signing up to, to play? You know, I don't think they really told us a- anything. All we had were the sides. We didn't have scripts or anything. We just had, you know, two scenes. I'd only read two scenes from, from the whole of the show. So uh, we really had no idea. And, I mean, we Googled... <laughs> my, my parents and I kind of Googled it to find out what was going on, what I was auditioning for. Yeah. And, you know, we read up a bit on it, but we were like... Is it, is it going to be this violent? Is it going to be this... Go- like, you never really know with adaptions. So um, we were just kind of like, go for it yeah. and see what happens. So when did you get the word that you had actually gotten it? I think it was like three or four months after I'd begun auditioning. So it was a long, it was a long process. And I'd really kind of 
I was quite torn up about the whole thing and I'd really kind of tormented myself over it. So I found out, my mum woke me up one morning and was like, good morning, Sansa. <laughs> and then I woke up and I was like, oh, no, and I just started crying. Yeah, it was a really good day. Yeah, so I guess there's sort of like a, a before and after moment in you know, in, in your life in that sense, that was, that was it. What, or maybe it was in a, in a different sense, once people started to see the episodes, because before that, I guess who knew, but at yeah. that point, what happens? I believe I remember that Tom McCarthy, who just won an just Oscar, won for, an Oscar Spotlight, for Spotlight, was the original director? He was the original director, yeah, he directed the pilot. And he was wonderful, such a lovely guy. And, you know, we all shot the pilot and then there was some there was some recasting and some things, wigs that needed to be swapped around. Yeah. And it didn't it wasn't quite right. So um I don't think the original pilot will be aired anytime right. soon. <laughs> unless you do like a documentary on Tom McCarthy's right, life and right, they might air right. it. Who knows? <laughs> so but this was always gonna be a huge production. So the first where did you even go to do that? original it was just kind of a month in belfast in october and i mean none of us really knew at that point whether it was going to be big or not i remember once we just shot the pilot and i went up to david and dan and i was like bye is this forever i don't know this is so sad i was crying as per you'll learn throughout the, the course of this podcast that i cry at almost everything and they were kind of like you know, we don't know if it's going to go. It's really 50-50, who knows. And I think it really nearly didn't get made. So we really didn't know. And I think it was only about the third season that it started to kind of pick up its momentum. Wow. I mean, people watched it, but it didn't. It wasn't a huge thing that it is now, I suppose, until around the third or fourth season. So how was this, first the making of it and then the airing of it, affecting your life? From the making of it point of view, I imagine scheduling did not allow you to just sort of do it during your breaks. So how did it affect, you know, your family and school life? Right. Well, it actually worked out pretty well because it shot over the summer. It was shot from kind of June to December. So I only really missed about three months of schooling, three or four months of school. And my teachers were, they were pretty lenient. So they gave me free periods to catch up in. And I pretty much managed to maintain like a normal adolescence, I thought, for a few years, especially because it, you know, first season, second season, it wasn't massive. So it wasn't overly difficult. And also it kind of felt like, a natural progression, like a natural evolution. My friends, you know, were turning 13, 14, going to high school, and um, that was the big change in their lives. Mm -hmm. And the big change in my life was I was just going to work on Game of Thrones. <laughs> so it, it never really, it, there wasn't one moment where it hit me and I was like, this is so different and I can't handle, handle my right. life. I think because you were at that point only 13 when it started, yeah. you were accompanied by your mom for the first few years? Yes, yeah, I was. I was with my mom and my dad would come out and visit sometimes. So I had a chaperone. I didn't go child star crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was important though, really like to have her there and it, it kept things a little normal? Yeah, I think so. It, it definitely kept things normal. She kept me grounded and I have two older brothers that continue <laughs> to do so on a daily basis. So yeah, it, I kind of needed her out there and I had schooling out there and stuff. So we did maintain um, a level of normalcy. And then when you would go home on breaks from, from the show, 
how did things change there? Because there's no way that even Game of Thrones, when it was not yet a full hit, I mean, people were aware of it. They were certainly aware that you were on it. Were right. your Was your life at home and with friends and whatever suddenly different? You know, it, it, it was slightly different, I suppose. I suppose one of the biggest things was figuring out who your real friends are and where their loyalties lie. But that was probably only the big change. I mean, no one really ever stopped me in the street for a few years and then it's once I got once I hit about 18 and you can go out in England mm-hmm. and in bars for some reason people I think are just looking for people <laughs> like that. So it, it it got a bit difficult then, but it never it never really obstructed my life and it never stopped me from doing like the normal things that I wanted to do and I can still kind of do that sort of stuff. There may be only one other person out there who can really grasp what your experience has been like and continues to be, and I imagine that's Maisie Williams. For people who, you know, maybe need a character reference here, this is Aria. I guess I wonder, did you get, she's about, it seems like a year and a half or so younger. Yeah. Did you guys hit it off right away? We did. From the from the very first audition that we did together, we really hit it off. And I remember coming out of the audition and being like, I really hope that girl gets it. If I don't get it, I really hope she gets it. And she later told me that she said the exact same <laughs> thing. And then our parents kind of got along famously when they were chaperoning us in Belfast. And so every time they would get a gin and tonic, me and Maisie <laughs> would like come along. And now every time we're in Belfast together or anywhere together, it's sleepovers. She really is like a sister to me. And it fe- it's, it's kind of been, especially because we've gone through adolescence together and this growing up and puberty and everything that comes with it and also being in the spotlight together somewhat. Mm-hmm. She has really helped me out. And I've really, I think, helped her out. And she's been kind of a real rock for me while I've been doing this. I read a, there was an article that was written about the two of you, and it was kind of a funny story. I assume it's true, but I've got to ask you, where (laughs) at the early read-throughs where, you know, again, you guys are 13 and 12 or whatever it was at the time, and you're having to listen to some of the language and the situations and uh, (laughs) stuff that's more adult. How did you guys show that you were getting a kick out of it? Oh, we we made up like hand signals across the tables. So anytime there was something really awkward, we'd like scratch our chins, or we just we had these hand signals to be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe they just said that." <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. We kind of bonded over that as well. Bonded over being the only young ones, and Isaac as well, who plays Bran. He was a couple of years younger than us, but we were kind of a whole other separate group to the older ones because you know we weren't allowed to hear some of the really? stuff. <laughs> And the gaps just closed in the past few years. We were really kind of isolated for a while, not in a bad way, just because of our age. Um, And that's what made us really kind of dependent on each other. So over the years, Sansa has obviously been subjected to some horrible stuff. And just to recount for those who aren't keeping score. (laughs) Let's reel uh, it off. (laughs) I mean, and you'll have to tell me what I'm leaving out here. But father and aunt murdered. Yeah. uh, Passed along from one sadistic monster to another. Yes raped slashed yes you know goes on and on yeah how have you sophie handled this darker stuff and having to portray it are you fully able to separate the emotions that you feel from your character or does it sometimes bleed over 
It's a good question. I I think I can really separate myself from her. It's always kind of been a bit of a, a split personality with Sansa and I. Like I've, it's she's always been a part of me, so I can kind of slip into one person and then slip into Sophie again. So I've kind of been able to do it, but you know when you have to do those kind of scenes, especially you know the rape, you want to do it justice and not do it half-heartedly and you know you put a lot of yourself into it and it affects you at the time of of the shooting but luckily you know I'm surrounded by people who are very supportive and everyone on the crew and as soon as you're done with that scene everyone is just kind of like let's go get a drink (laughs) and then you can really separate yourself and I think it's really important to to surround yourself with people like that that can kind of pull you straight out of it but at the time at the time of the shooting, it was a very awkward, intense experience. This is the rape one in particular. Yes, in yeah. particular. So that one, obviously, and, and many of these other things that we listed, provoke a big discussion in the age of social media where people are, everybody has an opinion and mm-hmm. they want to share it with everybody else. What do you make of some of these dialogues that are sparked by Game of Thrones and in particular the rape one, which really had people talking? Well, you know, I thought it was it was really important that we had a dialogue going at all because one of the things, especially about rape, is that it just kind of, it's so taboo and people don't want to talk about it and it does sometimes just get brushed under the carpet. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Hunting Ground documentary. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's things like that that, you know, we really do need to speak up about it because it is happening and it, it does just fly under the radar. So I thought it was really good that we had a dialogue going whether people were complaining about the show or not but you know especially with that our show isn't a show that wants to distract from the the horrors of the real world and the show is loosely based on the war of the roses and and medieval times and that stuff did happen and continues to happen yeah and so it would almost be an injustice to kind of ignore that completely and it wouldn't feel true and it wouldn't feel right and i think i think we did it in in a tasteful way that isn't overexposing anything or, or you know, dumbing it down, dulling it down. We, you know, I think we did it justice in yeah. a way. I think, I hope. So somebody asked David if you were frightened doing some of these different scenes, the crazier stuff, and he yeah. said, the one time I saw Sophie genuinely frightened was when she had to sing yes. in season <laughs> uh, two. Yeah. Is that an accurate... You know, description? That's so accurate. <laughs> because I'm I'm a really bad singer, and everyone has been very vocal about just how bad I am my whole life. And that was the most terrifying moment. I remember crying on set before I had to go and do it, because, I mean, I had to go and sing in front of people as well. Like, it was a group of supporting artists, extras that I had to sing in front of. And I can't even sing in the shower without cringing at myself. <laughs> So it was a big deal for me. Absolutely. It was a big hurdle. <laughs> Has there been a, a scene that you were most excited and least excited to have to do? It sounds like the singing might have been the least excited, but Yeah. <laughs> how about where you look you read the read it on the page and you just can't wait to bite into this? It's actually been two scenes and they've both been on this past season on this year. It was Ramsey's death when Sansa kind of finally gets her first kill. Because, I mean, like, I'd been wanting desperately to do that. And I felt 
that she's had the potential to do this for so long and it just really felt like it had all been leading up to this mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. And the other was Sansa and John meeting again because when I read that, I just bawled my eyes out and it was so beautifully written and it was a bit of good news for the Starks. And I get so invested in, in their stories, especially Sansa's, obviously, that a bit of good news, it meant a lot for yeah. me as well. Well, you mentioned this past season, this most recent season, and the arc that Sansa went on is really has gotten a lot of attention and appreciation because of what she's had to endure over all the years uh, up to it, leading up to it. Yeah, she basically went from being what a lot of people saw as a pawn, I think, to being a leader. Yeah, and for you, how important was that? How much you? It sounds like you were kind of looking forward to that hopefully happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from day one, I always saw her as a very strong, very clever girl. I mean, yes, she was kind of blinded by this fairy tale of King's Landing and the capital and being queen. And I mean, what 13-year-old isn't (laughs) or wouldn't be Mm -hmm. in that situation? And so, I, I mean, as soon as she got to King's Landing and was disillusioned by it, you could see her really adapting to her situation and playing the game and and pleasing who she needed to please in order to survive. She's a survivalist Mm -hmm. and really adapting to the people that she was around and soaking it all in. She was a sponge and she completely absorbed it and I was always like, okay, and then there's gonna be a point (laughs) where she finally uses everything, all of that knowledge that she'd soaked up and, and use it to her advantage and I think season six was the season that she she really showed people what she could do and she utilized those skills was it tough for you because you for the five preceding seasons there were people that were ragging on her for not being more assertive obviously it's not like you can control what she's gonna do but I mean it's it's got to be frustrating to hear your character take flack definitely because you get so invested in it and also you know, Maisie and I were always kind of lumped together and, and she was the really fun, active, <laughs> kind of spunky kid right. and I was just kind of like the naive, vulnerable, just kind of annoying girl. <laughs> and so the comparisons, I suppose, between the characters really got to me because I saw her as this wonderful character. Right. But, you know, she she got what she needed to get eventually. Right. Now, the one episode that got maybe more attention than any other this season was Battle of the Bastards. Yes. What's your take on that episode? Everybody has their various reasons for why they were into it or talking about it or whatever. Just even in the making of it and then in the airing of it, what distinguishes that one for you when you think about it? I think it's Miguel Sapochnik. I think that's how you pronounce his last (laughs) name. I've asked him a thousand times and he's always like, you're doing it wrong. But... (laughs) Miguel's direction and how it was shot and the amount of hard work that went into that was just insane. I mean, it was like three weeks in a muddy field in Belfast and it was like pouring with rain every day and completely covered in mud, completely exhausted. It was towards the end of the shoot as well. I mean, for me, it was how it was shot. I thought it was so real and they they wanted it to be muddy and dirty and not in any way a glamorized movie version of a battle like it was it was real and raw and that plus all the shots the shots were so different and I've never seen anything like it I mean everything kind of told a story I mean even from you know when John is getting 
uh, he's kind of getting trampled and, and suffocated and he kind of climbs out. And that shot coming from like the bird's eye view of him pulling back, it was beautiful. And it almost felt like John's rebirth. And it, it just felt like every shot was was really telling something and saying something. And um, I don't know, I think he deserves all of the awards for that, Miguel does. He's wonderful. And it's a testament to how Emmy voters felt about it that that, I believe, aired after voting had already started and people were asked to hold off on casting their ballots until it aired and there was no guarantee that they would do that. Oftentimes people are itching to, you know, file their vote. It's cool to be able to do that. Yeah. And they waited. And And they waited. Yeah. And I'm so glad they did because it was, honestly, and I'm so biased as well, but I think (laughs) it was one of the best episodes of um, television. Yeah. And it's really down to Miguel. Yeah. I have to ask you a question that I think might be of interest to people, which is, where do you actually watch the episodes? How do you consume Game of Thrones? Whenever and wherever I can. <laughs> in my, the problem is, in my apartment building in London, they can't get Sky, which is what airs <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> so what the heck? I know. So my brother goes to Game of Thrones yeah. viewing parties like down the road, yeah. but I don't want to go because I look like a freak if I turn <laughs> up like. Woo! So I have to kind of watch it wherever and whenever I can. I go to my friends' houses, they record it, my mum records it. I mean, I watched Battle of the Bastards sat with Kit and over the phone with Miguel doing DVD commentary, and that was the best way to watch it. That was the first time you saw it? That was the first time I saw it, and I was like holding Kit's hand like, yes, this is beautiful, you're doing so well. Wow. So yeah, uh, I kind of just watch it wherever and whenever I can. Did I read something that, at least in the earlier years of the show, maybe still your parents were banned from watching it with you? Yeah, I when I lived at home, I would go and lock myself in a separate room because I just couldn't do it. I mean, I, it was just so embarrassing. And watching a sex scene with your parents yeah. alone is just the worst Never thing. Never good. And when you both know that person, it's, right. it's, it's just 10 times worse. So, yes, I used to watch it separately, and I still do. Is it hard? I mean, the, the most valuable commodity pretty much anywhere in the world Mm. is the secrets of what is to come on Game of Thrones. And there are very few people that might know that. You are one of them. Are you constantly asked about what's, you know, fill me in, what's what's coming? And have you ever slipped and actually let it out? You know, I had a real tendency to have when I was maybe like 15, 14, I would get really excited that I would want to tell everyone. (laughs) Um, And then I decided that this was a terrible thing. And I like to watch the show as a fan now and and not read anything but my parts so that I have no idea what's going to happen, which bodes well for me because then I can't spoil anything. Right, right, right. And, you know, also I just get to, to watch it for the passion. And then I realize, you know, what it would mean to the fans if someone had spoiled it for them. <laughs> but it can be difficult. Yeah, because I'm sure that doesn't stop other people from trying to... Yeah, exactly. Right. But season... I mean, for, like, season seven, we probably won't get the scripts till, like, two weeks before we start shooting, so... And then how does that work? How guarded is it? Like, I've read stories about with other closely guarded, you know, properties where... They will bring it to your house, let you read it, and have somebody wait while you read it and then take it back because they don't trust anybody. How does it work with Game of Thrones? I mean, it's not that it's not that extreme. Yeah, I think it was like the Star Wars set yeah, or something. It, might be, yeah. it was something like yeah. that. 
but Game of Thrones is it's not that bad. We've had to implement like more security on our emails and stuff. So I mean they you can't get the scripts until you prove to them that you have like <laughs> a three step passcode kind of thing. So it is quite strict and if and you know all our call sheets we have to give in at back at the end of the day and all of the sides after a day of shooting. So people keep track. But I'm known to kind of just like leave things lying around everywhere. <laughs> but it has my name on it, so if it actually came out, right. I'd be screwed. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I haven't done it yet. <laughs> not yet. So. Not yet. Recently, you made your first big film, right? This yeah. is X Men Apocalypse. Can you talk about how that came about? If that was always a a goal to to end up doing movies as well, and how you felt about the experience. Uh, I don't know if, like, I, I'd ever said, you know, specifically, I really want to do movies. I'd always, in fact, I think in, it was in an interview with, like, Entertainment Weekly or something I'd said, like, a year before I got the role, I was like, I really want to do a superhero movie. Um, I just want to play a superhero. And I think that was probably because I'd been playing this downtrodden character <laughs> for so long that I was like, what's the polar opposite right, right. of that? <laughs> so, yeah, I'd wanted to do that specifically. And you know, for it to be X-Men and such a kind of renowned series of films, I was really, really lucky. And with a brilliant director and an amazing cast, I kind of really lucked out on that one. So, yeah. And I was a huge fan of X-Men anyway. You were, okay. Yeah. And so, first of all, when is there even time to, to do a movie? Because what's what's the sh- shooting schedule like for Game of Thrones? So, normally it's from, like, June till December. And then you have six or so months off to kind of fit in whatever you can Mm -hmm. and x-men was a a five-month shoot so it was really kind of cutting it tight and there were a few things that had to be rearranged but we managed to fit it in it nearly didn't happen but we managed to fit it in nice so yeah i was really lucky because it was close to being like you can't do (laughs) (laughs) x-men i know there with x-men there were a lot of vfx and cgi and that sort of stuff is that also the case for your experience on Game of Thrones or was this new to you with with X-Men? It was actually pretty new to me. I mean, Game of Thrones has a lot of effects, but I mean, the only ones that I'm really involved in is like crowd replication. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's it. It's not the most exciting. It's not exciting. (laughs) And there's no green screen and there's no like things flying around. So yeah, that was a whole new experience for me on X-Men. I mean, we had things like blowing up and going up on wires and moving your things around and eventually things would be put in (laughs) to make you look like a real superhero. And it does kind of throw you off balance a bit because you feel like such an idiot doing all of those hand gestures and not knowing like if this is going to come off convincingly. So the movie being good, half of it is reliant on how well the special effects are put in. I mean, the visual effects, but they're pretty good. They've been doing it for years. I had faith. (laughs) Now, you gave a couple of interviews around the promotion, I think the release time of uh, X-Men, where people asked you, as I'm sure you get all the time, you know, what's it like growing up in the public eye and especially in the age of Twitter and Facebook and all of this. And yeah. you talked about the fact that, A, obviously it's not easy. That shouldn't doesn't take a genius. But yeah. also the fact that something, I guess, in the, in the preparation run-up to X-Men was of help to you you felt and so I want to ask you just part a the the part that it shouldn't take a genius to uh, to know but just anyway you know how has that been it's hard enough to just do it in a regular high school but to then have millions of people 
you know, watching you as you grow up, but then B, what you found as a, a good way of, of dealing with that? Well, I mean, a lot of it was to do with growing up in the public eye, going through puberty, and all of a sudden I didn't have time to go to my ballet classes, mm-hmm. and I didn't have time to go to my gymnastic classes, and I love pasta. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the most difficult part of it was body confidence and that kind of thing, and it you know, it can really get you down when, like, thousands of people are commenting on, oh, Sansa put on 10 pounds, oh, and you're like, Jesus. oh, God. <laughs> so when I got X-Men, it really was such a blessing in disguise when they said, we're going to get you a trainer, and I was like, I hate you. Please don't do this to me. And I got the trainer, I got on a diet, and it just it changed my entire mentality. Like, everything, it really kind of got me out of this rut that I'd been in, and exercise and eating right is very good and I recommend it to anyone. <laughs> All right. And as far as the trolls and whatever out there, do you do you use social media? Have you have you decided to just, you know, how, how do you handle the, the jerks that are inevitably out there? I get yeah. jerks and I'm nobody. So You're I'm not sure nobody. You're <laughs> everything to me. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, I have social media. I have Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. I kind of just don't read everything and I think that's the best way to be because also I mean you just get overly overly critical of yourself and it's just not a good place to put yourself in and for every 10 good comments you see one negative comment and it throws you off completely so I really don't look at that kind of stuff I just use it to kind of get my message across communicate what I want to say maybe you know interact with fans slightly but I really don't go searching for anything right it's the internet and sometimes you can't help but right, see things right. but uh, it's safe to say that I have not googled myself <laughs> in years in years well so at this point uh, this is just my final question I guess you are now 20 20 yeah so most people are still figuring out what they want to do at this point mm-hmm. you have already accomplished a lot you've done so much of what people spend their lives trying to do in this business to be a part of a show, to be a part of a successful show, to be a, all of this stuff, and then yeah. expanding it to movies. So what are your dreams and ambitions for the future? Is it sort of at a point where you can say there's a, a specific part that you want to play or a goal of to continue, you know, continuing to do movies or winning an Oscar or whatever it might be? Are there specific things that if you were given truth serum you know, you would say these are really the things that are important to me to do in the future. People do ask me this and I never really know what to say because my ambitions are to just, really to just keep taking projects that mean a lot to me that are unique and and inspired and work with people that I really respect and just have good scripts, scripts that, you know, people can take messages away from those things that they watch and they can implement them in their own lives and just change things or change the way people think about things. That's kind of what I want to do. I just, I really love acting for the acting. And that's, you know, whether they're, whether they end up being good projects or not, it doesn't matter to me as long as I enjoy them and they have a good message. That sounds like a very healthy attitude that will serve you well in the long term. Well, so we'll, see. I, we'll see. But <laughs> thank you so much for, for this. Oh, and thank uh, you. Really appreciate it.
I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.